Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The Law Enforcement Today Show is brought to you in part by Transformations Treatment Center. Many are using the term epidemic to describe the current problem of drug and or alcohol abuse in the United States. Virtually everyone we know has been negatively impacted by this problem. Yet for so many that are experiencing the devastating effects of drug and or alcohol abuse, they don't know who to turn to for help. Who can we trust to care for our loved ones? Transformations Treatment Center is one of the most respected, ethical, and professional drug and alcohol treatment centers in the world with a strong focus on individualized care, offering a wide range of holistic, specialized, and medically supervised treatment programs. We know that many of you have questions. Take the time to call Transformations Treatment Center for the answers. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Or go online to transformationstreatment.center. Calling us from the Denver, Colorado area. Lisa Lockwood on the phone. Lisa is a retired law enforcement officer from Chicago area. And I'm going to say this, a beauty queen. She's got a great story to tell you about it. Lisa, thanks for joining us on Law Enforcement Today Show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jay. And thank you for your service in blue as well. It's nice to know that I've got a, uh, a partner that was in law enforcement. Well, thank you very much. I've gotten much better. If you've listened to the past episodes of the show, for a long time, I really struggled with what do you say when people say thank you for your service? And then I realized the appropriate thing to say is you're welcome and thank you for saying so. Yes, exactly. I never liked it. And to be honest with you, I, I hear it far more often now than retired than uh, when I was on the job ever. Well, I think it's respectable. And I was, I was also in the military, so I'm an Air Force veteran. And I'm always the first one to recognize somebody else. And a lot of times I don't even say that I was in in because it's, it's not that I'm looking for the kudos or, or you know, somebody to know that, but I'm, I'm just a big patriot. And anybody that has served our country or has served in, you know, a, a county or state level or municipality, I know what's involved with that work. So there's a full appreciation and gratitude from me for, for it. Before we get into the conversation about your experience, you're pretty active uh, in social media. You're pretty active on the internet. You've got a couple books. Where can people get more information about all the things you do? Simple. My name's LisaLockwood.com is my website. My email is Lisa at LisaLockwood.com. And you've got, what, three books, I think? I do. I have, I have two books, and then I did a uh, co-author compilation on Heart of a Military Woman. Uh, what are the other two called? The, so... Undercover Angel from Beauty Queen to SWAT Team is my memoir, so I started writing that when I left law enforcement. What helped me write that is I was a, somebody who loved to journal, so during my police career, I, I journaled when I went home, and so a lot of those stories became prominent in my book, Undercover Angel. And then after law enforcement, I ended up writing a book called Reinventing You, because obviously, when people leave law enforcement, leave the military, it's the now what phase of their life. 
So I kind of was lost, as a lot of people are, after having a career and you're in a specific field, what to do next. So I started doing a lot of personal development and started a coaching business and figured out what people needed to do to rediscover a passion that may have been missing in their life, they weren't able to pursue, and then how to monetize it. That's the key right there. I'm talking to a a young man that I'm mentoring, and he wants to get into voiceover work. And we talked about things like podcasting. We talked about doing commercials. And the old analogy is, and I use cars for this, the, the, the dragway, the raceway, it's torque that gets you off the line in a vehicle. It's horsepower that keeps you moving. When you talk about new careers, radio, podcast, whatever, it's it's passion that gets you started, but it's monetization that keeps you going. When you said learning how to develop a new career and and basically become profitable at it, that's so important. And people are so lost, Jay, quite honestly. When I left the military, I thought, oh, great, now what? Because I knew I joined the military to get an education. It was a means to an end for me. It's not something that I sought out for. Growing up on welfare and being in in a place where I had a father who believed in corporal punishment, and it was rough. Seven kids. Five of my siblings were high school dropouts. Three of my sisters were teenage mothers. And the cycle of welfare continued. And the one thing that I had going for me is that I loved to read. I loved reading, so that allowed me to excel in school. And I thought, well, all my friends are going off to college. How am I going to do this? And that's why I joined the military. Great move for you because you had your military career. I believe so was the United States Air Force. Thank you for your service there. Thank you. And then when you left the Air Force, you began to pursue a career in law enforcement, correct? Not right away, because college was the goal, and that's the part where I was lost, and that's where I wanted to start helping people, because I knew the pain that I went through of not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. I was a heavy equipment operator in the military, and I was also a dispatcher. I did dignitary support. I drove generals, and I drove Dick Cheney, uh, you know, with Secret Service. So I thought, well, I really don't want to do that in civilian world. I didn't want to be a driver. I didn't want to be a truck driver. And I was going to college and needed to make earn money while I was in college. So I started working private security because it offered me the shift that I needed to pursue college. So police wasn't even on my list or roster of, of a thought of something I ever wanted to do. Funny, the thing is for me, and a lot of people I know, I, I say you break it down in three ways. There are people like me who had the calling that wanted to be a police since I, I wanted to be a priest first. And when I was in seminary, I realized that wasn't a calling for me, and police work was the next thing I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Then we had people that came in the career because it was an opportunity, benefits, pay, and then fell in love with it and decided this is something you really loved. Right. And then you had people came in for a career, the opportunity, the benefits, and they just did it, and they usually didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'll let you know how it turned out for me. So while I was working private security and going to college, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, because you take the cursory courses that you need in order to get the associates. I loved psychology, and on a whim, I decided to take one criminal justice course. And as an avid reader, I started reading stories on what was the mindset of serial killers. That was interesting to me. What made them do that? What happened in their lives when they were young to propel them to that kind of life? And because I did that, immediately I switched over to get my associates into criminal justice because I felt the calling at that point. I said, this is compelling. This is interesting. 
and not until I did a ride-along with the Chicago Police Department with a tactical unit in the back seat, plainclothes coppers, and I saw them respond to a victim of a drive-by shooting. They told me to stay in the car, and I watched them run out to the scene. When they secured the scene, they allowed me to get out of the vehicle and actually look at the victim who's laying on the ground bleeding from the head. And when I saw what those police officers did, that tactical unit, it was the moment, that was the defining moment in my life that said, all right, this is it. I'm, I'm getting into law enforcement. I'm going to help. I'm going to make a difference out here. And I figured I, I had the aptitude for it. Now it was a matter of just getting the ducks in, in row for it. I became a 911 dispatcher soon after that before I took the police exam. So I think it's safe to say that you are not what people would expect when you think of a law enforcement officer. You didn't get in the career the way a lot of people do. You didn't come from a law enforcement family. It was right. something that was not part of your DNA, as they say. Yes, and even though I did grow up in a neighborhood in Chicago on the south side, there were you know neighbors who were police and fire. It was kind of that that blue collar. Uh, atmosphere I grew up in, and even then, I was I was a wuss, Jay. I was a sissy kid. I didn't want my hands dirty. I was a girly girl. So the fact that I even went into the military was was astounding. If you asked me at high school graduation, what do you want to do? I thought, oh, you know what? I do love psychology. This is great, but I want to act. I want to go to Hollywood one day and be an actress. That was the mindset of 18-year-old Lisa graduating high school. We're talking with Lisa Lockwood. Lisa is... Well, she's got a lot, a huge background. You're wanting to stay tuned. She's a retired law enforcement officer. She's a U.S. Air Force veteran. Uh, She's a beauty queen pageant. She's a SWAT operative. There's so much to tell you about. You listen to Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. We all know that law enforcement, first responders, and military have dangerous jobs. They see and experience traumas that most can't even imagine. And all too often, that takes a toll leading to substance abuse, PTSD, and co-occurring mental health disorders. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to helping protect those who protect. Call 888-991-9725 online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program, offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the dedicated and highly specialized treatment they need at Transformations. Their program features first responders and veterans therapists helping first responders and veterans. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at transformationstreatment.center. Return conversation on the Law Enforcement Today show with Lisa Lockwood. Lisa is a retired law enforcement officer from the Chicago, Illinois area. Also United States Air Force veteran. Uh, she's a crime analyst, author, speaker, and media contributor. You've been like all over television, too. I'm on your website, lisalockwood.com. What are some of the shows you've been on? Uh, my first show ever, my first national show after law enforcement was The Big Idea with Donnie Deutsch. And because I was on book tour, that led to other opportunities for national television. So 
2007, that kind of broke it open for me. And after that, it'd be the Steve Harvey show, uh, Nancy Grace. I was regular on Nancy Grace all the way from 2007 until she switched off and went on streaming and then became a Fox contributor. So up until a couple of years ago, Jane Blaise Mitchell, HLN, CNN, Fox, all of the, the major networks. And you can see a lot of her videos on her website, Lisa Lockwood. Dot com. Now, I want to go talk about uh, your law enforcement career, a uh, bird's eye view from start to finish. Sure. I, I would like to share this. When I was a 911 dispatcher, and I actually said to people that my inkling, that the feeling that I had is that I was going to become a police officer, and when I opened my mouth, I felt immediately that people thought, oh boy, give me a break. Like, yeah, you can be a good dispatcher and do the job, but honestly, Jay, I got more slack from the women than I did from the men. I felt very much embraced for professionalism from the men, and the women who were other dispatchers just thought, who does she think she is? It's a a terrible thing to say, but, you know, the the women's club is not as strong as the boys' club is. So I felt that, hey, I wasn't getting that support, and regardless of that, I went ahead and I took the police exam, and I was third on the list and had the fortune of using military points because they give you credit for that, that got me in right away. So after a year and a half as a 911 dispatcher, I went to the police academy, graduated and started my my field training and rookie career. And a lot of times I was borrowed for undercover operations when I was still a rookie. And that was interesting, I have to tell you. I'll I'll bet it was. I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, Before we went to break, you talked about and I'm paraphrasing. You didn't know if you were tough enough to, to be a cop. And I'll be honest with you, I felt the same way. When I got hired by Baltimore, I was like, look, I've been in a lot of fights as a kid and stuff. I always lost, and I never felt myself as being physically or mentally tough enough to do it. And it turns out that I was pretty good at what I did. Um, and you said you, you kind of felt the same way. I did. I did. I felt I was squeamish about a lot of things. I mean, even as a kid, you know, watching horror movies or seeing blood or that sort of thing. I mean, I was the kid that was off to the side throwing up in those episodes. So, you know, what the heck would make me think that I had what it takes to be a police officer? And I think probably going through the Air Force Academy, the boot camp, and toughening myself up, so to speak, in that regard, I felt, well, after that accomplishment, I'm sure, as far as gun handling training, had that confidence, and then everything else I needed to learn. I really did. There wasn't hand-to-hand combat that I was involved in 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 the Air Force training. So all of that came through police, and fortunately, our department had great training where we were constantly put in in situations where um, we needed to, to battle and, you know, from foam, foam batons to being pinned on the, de- on the ground and wrestled and that sort of thing. And that's where I really learned how to prepare myself for the street. The only way I could have learned was by going through training and then graduating and hitting the streets. I thought I knew a lot when I graduated from the academy, and I thought I was mm-hmm. well prepared. It turns out, look, I knew a lot about the books, but I really had no street experience whatsoever. And it was a rude awakening. It was. It was it, for me, too. And fortunately, again, I felt that I was supported with the field training program. I felt that all my questions, anything that I needed to have answered and being involved in bar fights and domestic violence and as a trainee, it taught me to be more prepared. And then when I was finally on my own, because we were single manned units, 
so I didn't have a partner sitting, sitting next to me, and I was on midnight shift on top of it. So the sense of camaraderie that came after that every time we pulled down a traffic stop and, you know, warrant pops or something like that, safety was number one. So I think having the extra caution during midnight shift got me equipped for all the other things that came later with undercover operations and SWAT. We did the exact same thing. We were one-man cars, and Mm -hmm. we worked every – we changed shifts every 28 days. So we did midnight for a month then 4 to 12, then day work, then back. Whoa. And, and rotating days off. That always turned your life upside down. Yeah, always I give you credit exa- for that. My gosh. I was always exhausted and had no social life. That was the other yes. thing. I love when I watch television with my wife and they have these cop shows on and they live in these million-dollar loft apartments and they have fancy sports cars and great, great fabulous social lives. I'm like, where do they work? Because it was never like that for us. <laughs> right. Right. I worked midnight shift for four and a half years, and I just felt, God, you know, the feeling of being burnt, I have to tell you. And then I was being pulled in on afternoon, so the overtime was there to do the undercover operations with the detective unit. So, uh, you know, it was a matter of, I, I was itching. I was itching to get off midnight shift because of low seniority, and I was ready to do something else. So I was promoted to detective, and after that, a lot of awesome, awesome opportunities opened up for me. Did you find, and this is another stereotype that I love to bash, uh, did you find that people were welcome and opening to you in law enforcement? I felt very supported. I had my mentors, I had my field training officers, and I was on the SWAT team after two years on the job. So that was a whole new different club that I felt welcomed into. Um, Because here's the thing. Everybody's worried and concerned about what's going to happen on SWAT calls. You know, this is the most deadly scenarios, aside from doing undercover operations and not having a wire or a vest or protection, but not knowing what's behind a door when you're about to execute a search warrant. These guys wanted to make sure that I had their back. And I was, I still am, small stature, 5'5", five, five, buck twenty, and could I, you know, if something happened to one of the other guys on the team, did I have the capability to get underneath them and pull them out if they were wounded? Was I able to take on somebody, you know, on hand-to-hand combat if necessary? And like I said, I felt that because they were with me during the training, they saw, you know, I was manhandling them like they were manhandling me. And again, I'm still small statured. It's not as if I was buff and competing for, uh, you know, a muscle contest or anything like that. But what I did have is the will, the desire, and uh, I, I wasn't going to back down from any scenario. So I think they did see that. That was part of what we went through. And I, I had the own personal doubts because uh, I was raised on watching John Wayne and, and Clint Eastwood and their police films. And it's like, oh, they're in fist fights and they're doing this and they're doing that. And mm-hmm. will I measure up? And the truth is, 95% of the job wasn't any of that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And when it did get physical, which I'm not going to be one to lie to people say it never did. When I had to go hands on with someone, it was quick. I learned very quickly as a rookie to be as effective and, for lack of better words, vicious and get it over with as quickly as possible because Mm -hmm. the longer it went on the more chance that other people got hurt. We are talking with Lisa Lockwood. Check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. When you get there, click like and follow. 
as click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Don't go anywhere. A lot of fascinating things coming up in just a few moments. All too often, we find ourselves getting asked, where can I find other great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Because of this, we decided to create our own network of podcasts here on Law Enforcement Today. You can access top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and free app. Head to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you will find our network link where we will continue to add podcasts from first responders and more. Remember, that's letradioshow.com to find out more information about law enforcement today, our podcast network, and to download our free app, letradioshow.com. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We are joined by Lisa Lockwood calling us from Colorado. Uh, Lisa is a retired law enforcement officer from the Chicago, Illinois area, also United States Air Force veteran. When you think of the stereotypical Hollywood portrayal of what police are like, Lisa breaks all those molds. And by the way, 98% of the men and women I knew in law enforcement, they don't fit any of those stereotypes. And I'm an Irish Catholic guy, and that's you would think the stereotype applies to me in a lot of ways it doesn't as well so i'm thrilled that you are here with us on the law enforcement a show thank you jay i'm happy to be here with you part of what you talked about earlier and i find really fascinating because i was so lousy at it i worked narcotics for a long time i was really good when the surveillance and, and the support type work and, and the investigative work but lousy at the undercover stuff i, mm. I was failed at drug buys i was the worst they had you pegged you, well, you looked like a cop right yeah, i looked like a cop i still do people still think i it, I'll, I'll let a little secret out i had a thing where i wore a medical alert bracelet that uh-huh. said that i was epileptic so right. that why I, if someone said you gotta use something before you buy it or sell it to you i said i can't i'm epileptic and it, they didn't buy it anyway so right I did. And here's the thing, Lisa. I think I was pretty good at police work, and I thought I had pretty good nerves. But when it came to undercover stuff, I was like, forget it. I, it was written all over my face. This guy's a liar. Ooh. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, you're not the only one out there that's not successful and looks like a police officer because my narcotic partner definitely looks like a police officer, no question about it. And he used to get angry because... A lot of the times with the cases that we worked and we were able to get a bad guy to flip and introduce me into whatever organization or whatever we were working on, he's like, why does she get to go undercover? Because we would let the informant pick. And <laughs> 10 out of 10 times, we're like, I'd rather introduce her than you, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> well, there is even, I think probably even today, there is a mindset in the criminal world and people can use terms like chauvinistic or whatever they want. I really don't care. And I'm not here to dispute that. But they automatically assume if there's a female undercover, there's no way she's police, especially if she's attractive. Forget about it. It's never going to be a copper. I'm going to go ahead and do whatever I need to do, and uh, she's okay. That's what kept me safe. That's it, what it kept is. me safe the whole way through. The other thing, though, is you've got to have, you've got to have good interpersonal skills and self-confidence because, like you said earlier, you're going in there, no badge, no ID, no vest. Quite often, there's no wire. It's not like television where you're in constant communication and they're talking into their 
cuff on her sleeve, whatever that is. I don't know what that is, but that's not reality. <laughs> right. And, you know, it kind of gradu- graduated that way because my, my first undercover, while I was still a rookie police officer, they wanted me to do a drug buy in a parking lot of the Hooters. And my undercover, you know, was that. I was a Hooters waitress that just got off duty, so go ahead and meet her in the parking lot with the informant in the car. So, of course, we had the car wired appropriately just to get the audio. And me, obviously, dis- being disarming, wearing a Hooters uniform, um, that's the last thing that they're thinking about. And obviously, they had d- done business with the person who ended up being an informant. So it was as easy as easy can be. And knowing that the parking lot was loaded with cops who had their surveillance and eyeball on me the entire time, um, the adrenaline was it was exciting. It was my first undercover when they came in and boxed us and ended up getting him and the other guy that was going to take off in the car put me under false arrest just for the pretense of trying to protect our informant. I mean, it was exciting. I was like, okay, yes. And if you think back when I told you when I was in high school and I love drama and I love acting, it was like this was my opportunity to segue that into police work. Certainly it's a stage. You've got to be a good actor. I've I've had several guests on the show who were, and there's a big difference between, you know, playing clothes, which I was good at, undercover, which is, I was lousy at, and then there's deep cover. But the undercover and deep cover people, they're really good actors. And and if they don't sell themselves as being the role they're in, their lives are on the line. True, 100%. 100%. So building, building rapport with the informant, too. You know, coming up with a little bit of a backstory prior to actually going out there to perform the operation, whatever it was. To, to start to see things. How do you know each other? What's the backstory? How long have we worked together? Having some kind of uh, a playful discourse between some of them, you know, so it doesn't look like, you know, it's stiff. So the relationship looks like it's warm and it's been a long relationship. What would you say would be the, the, the biggest challenge you experienced in undercover work? I would, t- I would have to say the biggest, where my, my cover was almost blown, the scariest for me was uh, a fencing operation, Mafia Tide where I was introduced in with an informant and they thought my cover was a exotic dancer stripper. And with, with that scenario, if, if, I, if I got a minute to tell you here, I was brought into the operation where they were selling, buying and selling stolen equipment, every, every, you name it from team jerseys to stereos, to bikes, to you know, lawnmowers and being able to be introduced in, and welcomed into the back room where they had all of this stuff, and that was when I didn't have a wire. Any my surveillance was a block away across the street, and um, my cover was almost blown in that scenario. So that was the scariest. That was the, the the point in my life where I said, you know, this is it. It's over. Did you have that aha moment when that was happening, where you realized that this could really go south very very quickly? I did because I, I, I was literally toe-to-toe with one of the mafia guys who said, point blank, are you a cop? And I laughed, and I laughed, and I, it was a nervous laughter, but it was a laughter of like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you really think that I'm a cop? You know, and getting into that like, uh, no, I'm not a cop, but it's pretty funny. After that was done, he actually said, I want you to come out. We're going out to the riverboat. We're gambling, and we're going to have you in the room and pay you to do a striptease for us before we go out there. And I said, okay, great. You know, so I got all the information, and that's what they thought was going to happen. So fortunately, it was, it was a moment. It was a heated moment, and I didn't know if the informant had narked me out, and he was playing both sides. So it went well, but in the end, uh, we, we had a mess as far as 
our commanding investigator and me put, being put in a position that was so precarious and I was underprotected. One of the things that Hollywood gets wrong so often is that scenario you just portrayed where they say, are you a cop? And they have this mindset that we're not allowed to, the, the rule they use and the wording they use in the Supreme Court is reasonable subterfuge, subterfuge, mm-hmm. uh, that we're not allowed to lie, that we have to say, oh yeah, we are, I am a cop. That is obviously not true. It's, everybody thinks that. You're right. Everybody thinks that. Thank God that's not the case because, you know, it saved my butt. And I, I hate to say this, but there, Detective Marty Ward in our department, he was detailed DEA, and he was, this is, I was a young cop, and uh, he was on a buy undercover, and they shot and killed him, and he had the wire on, and the whole thing's recorded, and it's uh, mm. heartbreaking to this day when I see any reports about that. And when you talked, Lisa, about being undercover and it going bad, that's what came to my mind. Yes, and I I think of over the years, I actually befriended uh, Donnie Brasco, Joe Pistone, and we we shared a lot of stories, and you know, obviously I've, I've, I've had the privilege of having his number and talking to him about his cases and some of the things that he's done afterward in the production uh, industry of getting things made for television and, and film. Talk about transitioning careers. So this guy deep undercover FBI for all those years is Donnie Brasco, and then getting out into the entertainment industry. But gosh, you know, that guy, what, what he went through and, you know. And you went through the same sort of things, and you're here to talk about it with us. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. We are talking with Lisa Lockwood. Get more information about her at her website, lisalockwood.com. She is a retired law enforcement officer, U.S. Air Force veteran, uh, media consultant, and author, and so much more. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Did you know that 32% of Americans listen to at least one podcast a month and 22% listen to podcasts weekly? After episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show have aired, they're converted to podcasts. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast and be sure to subscribe for free. Hi, this is John J. Wiley, host of the show. One of the questions I get all the time is where can I find new podcasts to check out? You can find podcasts from all genres posted daily on the Podcast Zone Facebook page. From established chart-topping podcasts to new up-and-comer podcasts, you can find them all posted at the Podcast Zone Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Podcast Zone. Look for the bright green profile image and be sure to click like and follow. And tell your friends about the Podcast Zone Facebook page. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. I'm John J. Wiley, retired Baltimore Police Sergeant, and I'm joined by Lisa Lockwood. Lisa is calling us from Colorado, a very peaceful part of Colorado, I imagine, because she is a retired law enforcement officer from the Chicago, Illinois area. Compare your lifestyle where you're at now compared to where you policed 
Is it like night and day difference? <laughs> it really is. It's uh, it's incredible. After after leaving law enforcement, lived in Montreal for a while, then popped back to Chicago. Then I was in L.A. for five years. I'm actually in the San Diego area right now. I'm just calling you today from from Colorado. But yeah, it's it's completely different than being in the hustle and bustle and mainstream of of city life and you know certain dangers in certain areas and that sort of thing. But I feel as if I still have my my hand on the pulse of what's happening just by being, you know, so current and so aware of what's happening in our society right now. Even in you know with the pandemic and the different crimes that are arising, um, what's what's being more prevalent right now and how people are being taken advantage of and scammed and frauded. One of the things I found it's always important to me, or or the extreme importance to me, is being in an area where I feel it's peaceful, where I don't feel threats of violent crime all the time. And I'll give you some examples of places I really like to go. I went to Ireland for the first time a couple of years ago. Even in Dublin with over a million people, I never felt like I felt in Baltimore. I never felt the threat of violence. Right. Um, in the mountains of Georgia, very peaceful. My mind becomes a different state. In Key West, Florida, I feel the same way. You put me in a city environment and it's like my head's on a swivel. I'm not ultra paranoid by any stretch, but a lot of what I went through in law enforcement with the, the chronic violence that either I saw or was directed at me, I think it's changed me. Well, I know it's changed me. And uh, I'm very sensitive to anything that looks threatening. Do you find that to be the case with you? I do. Our, our experience, the wisdom that we pulled from that experience, it's, it's almost like a light switch. You're put into the environment, and then all of a sudden you're, you're hyper aware of certain things. There's a lot of homeless in L.A. and San Diego area, and, you know, they're, they're on drugs and everything else. So what happens? There's, there's robberies. There's, there's uh, assaults, batteries, that sort of thing. So when I am in those areas with my husband, funny enough, my husband's an engineer, brilliant man. I call him John Wayne because, I mean, he should have been in the military and police. But, you know, he's, he's a man's man. And even still, knowing that, you know, he's six foot three and I'm five five, I still feel as if, you know, I'm, I'm going to be prepared and be ready for anything that's going to happen. Are you saying you feel like you have to protect him? Because I'm not waiting my life. <laughs> I would never say that in front of him. <laughs> How about this? I'd be the, the person that would make him aware of the threat, and then he would be the one to take care of the threat. <laughs> the funny thing is, and, and I, I, I'm not saying this as to be like a braggart. I got retired at the age of 33. I got hurt, uh, multiple surgeries. I was tired, and I, I started chasing a career in radio and this goes back to our conversation we'll probably have to have you on again about reinventing yourself but part of me is always going to be a street cop and when certain things come up my wife's been around me and i see something and i'm like my whole physical demeanor starts to change i don't turn into a lunatic i don't start screaming at people but i start watching people very very closely yes yes and it's in you this it's it's in us forever i'm i'm guaranteed you ask any police officer that you've interviewed that retired or had several years on whatever the case is that that kind of hyper awareness and focus just it doesn't leave you you have this cautionary thing that goes off and you you feel it and you know that something's off and you're going to watch observe surveil and address if necessary i do silly things like this even because being a police officer Somebody has water leaking out of their garage. What am I doing? I'm calling to make sure that they're aware. You know, are they vacation people? And, you know, so anything that's going to help and be of assistance to the public is still very much inside me. 
Was there a point in your career where you began to change from that rookie cop to like, oh my goodness, this is really serious? Yeah, because right now when I look back and people read Undercover Angel and say, I can't believe the things that you did. I look back and I say, I can't believe the things that I did because of the rookie mentality, because of being in the situation. And it was so current and so fast. And as we're preparing and having our meetings with SWAT and drawing diagrams of the interior of buildings and what have you, you're so in the moment and the adrenaline is there. Later on, I look back and I say, I can't believe that. I can't believe I went in without a wire. I can't believe that because I'm not so sure I would do that today as a 51-year-old woman with all the wisdom I have. Uh, There's a lot of things I wouldn't do. I would like to think I wouldn't do what I used to do when I was in my 20s and 30s, but chances are I'm still knucklehead enough I'd be doing it. (laughs) <laughs> you never know you never know <laughs> and there, there's some big changes i mean we like we both worked in departments where you were by yourself and then you had side partners would back it back up on calls and yeah we didn't we didn't have the luxury of waiting for backup all the time True. Uh, like when you you went to swat if you had a, a certain situation a lot of times in patrol we'd have to handle it because it would take two three hours for a swat to get assembled uh-huh. and, and arrive on a scene so People would say, and I, I almost laugh at people, especially on social media, where they quick to comment. They well, say, why, "Why didn't you wait for backup?" Exactly. Like, yes. Well, first oh. of all, I didn't have the opportunity to think it out for thirty minutes like you right. just did. Right, and I even I love when newscasters do the no shoot shoot scenarios because giving them an opportunity, giving journalists an opportunity to feel what it's like to have somebody approach you with a, a weapon, a small weapon, whatever it is, and you've got your gun out and you're about to be attacked and you have to make a decision in a split second of whether or not that this is life-threatening, These are th- this, the public needs to be aware of that. And I think if there's more footage of that out there, they'd realize that we're all human and there are so many threats out there and in those split decisions, you don't know whether or not your life is going to be taken or somebody in the public. So... And worst case scenario, you kill in line of duty or you, you survive and you're horribly disfigured for the rest of your life. Right. We had a, an exercise in the academy where an instructor would use a wooden cutout of a gun and have it in his hand by hanging down by their leg. And we would have our, our weapon out pointed at them. And we weren't allowed to shoot until they fired first. And oh. every time. Every time, because the reactionary time it takes, they yes. pull their gun out and shoot you multiple times before you had a chance to even get the first round off. Yes. So when people say, well, he shot first, and no one, sh- it, it drives me nutty. And I always say, were you there? Right. You weren't there. And as much as I love police, they're the worst at saying, well, I would have done this. <laughs> so uh, before we close, Lisa, I want to redirect the conversation to what you're doing now. So since 2007, I, after Undercover Angel came out, I, I became a regular consultant on, on television as a crime analyst for cases range, ranging from murder investigations, abductions, sex predators. I worked undercover to catch sex predators. I was a post of, as a 14-year-old girl. They would cross state lines, meet me in movie theaters, meet me in hotel rooms and that sort of thing. So, you know, just educating the, the public on those type things. Uh, Law and Crime Network, I'm a regular contributor now on murder cases, just to give it 
a police perspective of what happened in the investigation, what things were found, how how evidence was taken in, why were certain things missed, and that sort of thing. So a lot of it has to do with procedure. I'm working on a couple of projects right now. Be on the lookout with Lisa Lockwood, which is basically Bolo. Anybody um, that's non-police listening right now is when you get a briefing of what's happening in the community and what you need to be aware of. And I'm creating my own bolo, so to speak, to just educate the public of what's happening right now in real time. And you've also got three books you've written. Yes, Undercover Angel, which is my memoir, talks about police career and then my personal life and what happened in my relationships as a woman police officer and, you know, the contrast and that sort of thing. And then reinventing you, people who are trying to figure out what to do with their lives after they've left left a career or figured out it wasn't the career that they wanted. And then just a contribution in a book called Heart of Military Woman. And all that is found on your website, lisalockwood.com. You're also on social media as well. I am. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And you are available for television interviews, I am. I am. So as a, as a crime analyst and law enforcement contributor for over thir- 13 years, uh, people want to hear what it's like in, you know, from a police officer who's had that experience, who could explain things behind the scenes. Get more information about Lisa, what she's working on. Contact her online at lisalockwood.com. Lisa, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today Show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.